Alrighty guys, what's up? Hello and welcome to episode number 83 of the Audio Podcast uh, with me, Jason Von Cannell. Now obviously at the moment we've got flood issues in Queensland, so you've only got me today. Uh, I thought it was a better idea for me to just do one instead of attempting to drive to Brisbane and potentially getting flooded out. Uh, but it's a shame that Alex can't be with us today. I know he still has no internet and stuff at home too, so he'll be back up and running soon, and hopefully we'll be back to normal programming by next week. Uh, But do not be deterred. We've got heaps to go through today. So what we're going to be running through is a few discussion points. Number one, baby news. Obviously, I've had a new child, which I'll go through all the details on in just a moment. I want to make a brief statement on the Ukraine-Russia war situation, uh, which I will go through shortly. Uh, It's, yeah, just want to ad-lib this one a little bit. Uh, Next, there has been a study from New York on Pfizer's effectiveness in the age group of 5 to 11-year-olds. They also had some information on the effectiveness in 12 to 17s, but as a follow-up to the podcast I did a little while ago about whether or not to vaccinate your children... I thought it was very important to go through some of the first real-world data that has been collected. Uh, Next, there has been a Swedish study on mRNA potentially affecting liver DNA, which we will get stuck into. Uh, Also, a section of the COVID genomic sequence uh, found in SARS-CoV-2 was actually patented by Moderna three years ago, which is obviously pre-pandemic. And then I'm going to finish with a helpful diagram to maybe paint a picture for people who either have only just recently started listening or are only really starting to come through to the potential lab leak theory and all those scenarios and uh, something that might help you sort of tie it all together a little bit. It's not the most uh, comprehensive image that you may see. I literally just knocked it up in paint, but it might paint a bit of a picture for you anyway. So, to start off with, let's go to baby news. So, here's the big dog. Here's my boy. Jake Michael Von Cannell was born on Friday, the 25th of February, 2022. He was a 3.95 kilo baby, uh, 57 centimeters long, and has a very large set of nuts on him, which I think is particularly important considering the fact that he's literally been born into a global pandemic potentially World War III, and biblical flooding at the moment. So, uh, welcome to the world, Jake Michael Von Cannell. Uh, His older brother, Nate, is very, very happy to have him. He was really, really excited to uh, have the baby at home. It was interesting. We didn't really know if he really understood what was going on while Amanda was pregnant, so we were a little bit iffy on how he was going to go when we brought Jake home, and uh, Nate absolutely loves him. So, we're super stoked, uh, happy to have him here. Now, to give an update on the people who've been listening about all of our uh, potential issues that we have had throughout the pregnancy. So, we've had a lot of good news. So, in the hospital, uh, all of his normal tests he checked out on, he was, he was great. Uh, the CMV test is positive for him, so he will need to get some additional monitoring, but the early signs are really good. They did a hearing test on him, which he passed, uh, and the hearing loss was the most likely issue that he was going to have they also did an ultrasound of his brain as well and that all looked clear as well so at this point in time no real uh, concerns but we are going to have some extra monitoring for him uh, just to make sure that uh, everything's all good but everything's looking really really good Uh, mum and baby doing really really well he's feeding really really well which is nice because that means he sleeps really well too 
Uh, Mum and Jake are actually asleep at the moment while I do this. Uh, so yeah, guys, there, there's my new boy. So the uh, new generation of notorious VK bros are now complete. All right, let's get into some of the stickier stuff. So as the content suggested, I just want to do a brief statement on the Ukraine-Russia situation. So I have endeavoured a little bit. Now, obviously, I've had a lot going on, and you can see the uh, bags under my eyes and everything. The sleep deprivation is real at the moment. I've been endeavouring to do exactly like what we did with COVID, and I know Alex is is exactly the same as well, in that we intend with this channel to always bring you the most honest, genuine, authentic uh, analysis of the news and, and current events that are really affecting us. Like, we don't just want to talk about celebrities and bullshit. We want to talk about stuff that actually really affects us and really affects the world and may potentially affect my kids in the future. And obviously, the current war beginning in Ukraine with Russia is a is a pretty big deal at the moment. Massive, massive story. And I just want to be upfront with you and say the thing that probably most pundits who are commenting on this situation won't say, which is, honestly, we don't have any idea what's happening over there at all. We just don't have a clue. The level of, and I'm going to use the term misinformation, but let's be honest, it's, it's propaganda. Misinformation is just a 21st century word for propaganda. But the level of misinformation that's already been coming out of this war on both sides has been just ridiculously difficult to keep track of. There's already been news articles on both sides that have been caught out for using old stock images uh, from 2018. There have been stories such as the you know, Ukrainian uh, small contingent which told a Russian warship to go F themselves and then got killed. Apparently that's been refuted. So it's it's very different to the COVID situation where obviously with COVID there was a, a, a narrative that played out throughout the entire pandemic, but all of us could really compare that narrative against our boots on the ground real world experience Unless we live in Ukraine and Russia, honestly, we got no idea. Um, if any of you guys who are watching and listening do have relatives over there or you are acutely familiar with the situation, please put in the comments what you feel like is actually going on. But I'll just, I just wanted to issue a bit of a warning, which is this. The, the major concern that I have out of this entire situation is that the mainstream media at large has picked a side. And as we were about to go through a whole bunch of new information, which is contradictory to the side that the mainstream media picked last time, I just want to urge caution in reading too much into what you see on TV, what you see on social media, any of the information coming out of that area. Honestly, it's going to be really, really difficult until, you know... I don't know, weeks, days, weeks, months from now to actually figure out what's going on, why it's really happening, who the key players are. Because like uh, Alex made a really interesting point to me the other day when he was talking about how uh, Australian media on the news will be doing a report on the situation and they're like, now let's cross live to you know a boots on the ground report from Washington. And we, we go to some uh, you know news correspondent from Washington, D.C. to tell us what... 
you know, Washington's view on what's happening over in that in that region is. Now, I'm not going to pretend for a second that I have enough of an acute understanding of the socio-political circumstances regarding Ukraine and Russia's relationship and their history and everything that goes into it, which has brought upon uh, this situation. All I will say is this. Clearly, war is never the best uh the best way forward it's just not hopefully the west has learned from some of the mistakes that we have made in the very recent past i.e afghanistan iraq weapons of mass destruction hopefully we have learned from that but i am concerned that with the escalating rhetoric from our politicians in Australia, Western politicians in general, whether it's the Biden administration, whether it's Boris Johnson, and certain key figures rearing their heads again, like all of a sudden Tony Blair coming out of the woodwork, I just can't help but feel like instead of doing what is the right thing to do to alleviate this situation as quickly and peacefully as possible. I I just, I feel like that military industrial complex is starting to kick in again, and we are moving further and further down a road that we probably don't need to be moving further down. And just be very, very mindful about the language that's used in the media. Uh, and social media as well. Everything I've seen has been very emotive. It's all talking about, you know, bombings of childcare centres, women and children being targeted. There was that video that circulated around of a tank uh, crushing a car that was trying to drive past, and the accusation was that it was a Russian tank, and then I've heard another accusation that it was actually a Ukrainian tank. Who knows what's going on? But what I'm 100% can Uh, positive with is this there are agendas at play which they use the exact same tools to uh, play these agendas out as they do with every other agenda they mainly use emotive language to elicit an emotional response which is hard to argue with by a rational person so for example if you if you relate it to the COVID stuff when it was about vaccinations, it was about protecting you, but then they said, oh, it's about protecting your family and making sure you don't bring COVID home and kill, kill granny and grandma. It, that was, that, was the, that pulling on the heartstrings because making people emotional, may, it, it is the easiest way to convince them to do something that you want them to do. Be very, very, very mindful of any media that is putting out emotion-based stories right now try to take a step back and look at this thing as objectively as you possibly can and if you don't know what's going on if you don't have actual acute knowledge of it let's let's learn from COVID and let's all try to stay out of the public square on this just for a little while like let the people who know what's happening speak uh be mindful of who those people are if they claim to know what's actually happening and I know that this is rich coming from a guy who's, you know, we've spoken nothing about, like we've spoken a lot, sorry, about COVID and vaccines and stuff for the last two years and we're not scientists and I get it. I understand that. But, you know, the the COVID stuff, I invested two years of pretty heavy research because it greatly affected my life and was really concerning for a guy who's literally just started a new family. 
you know, having a global pandemic it could have been the largest danger to my children. And at the, the beginning of the pandemic, we had no idea how bad this is going to be for kids. So I invested so much time and effort into this. And you can at least fall back on the fact that there is a scientific community. And as much as following the science has turned to be into more of a uh, religious doctrine rather than actual scientific method... Uh, there's at least some sort of scientific backing to fall back to. When it comes to war and international politics, there ain't the same sort of scientific backing. So, yeah, all I want to say is that uh, I am humble enough to admit that I have no idea what's actually happening over there. And I hope that uh, in the society that we have seen be created over the last two years where everyone seems to have an opinion on absolutely everything, and that's totally fine. There's absolutely no drama with having an opinion on things. Uh, All I'm asking you to do is this. Learn from COVID, keep a very, very open mind, and keep your mind open to the fact that what you think is true may not in fact be true, and let's try to move through this as quickly, as peacefully as we possibly can. And that's all I'll say on that for now. Now, getting back to some stuff that uh, I know a little bit more about. So there's a new study uh, which has just come out of, let's bring it up here, uh, which has just come out of New York, which is the first real world uh, study on the effectiveness of the COVID, the Pfizer COVID vaccine among children ages 5 to 11 and 12 to 17 years in New York. And I mainly want to focus on the children 5 to 11 because remember, so... The biggest issue that I've had with the, uh, well, not only the Pfizer vaccine, but all the vaccines in general, uh, this entire pandemic, is the way that they have been misrepresented to the public at the beginning to encourage vaccine uptake. So again, remember, think back to the beginning of the uh, Pfizer rollout. The headline figure was 95% effective at preventing symptomatic SARS-CoV-2 infection. That was the headline. And then afterwards, clearly... If anyone's looking around, they will understand that in the real world, we're not talking about it preventing infection. Now we're trying to pretend that, oh, it only ever was meant to stop severe illness, but that's not the case. But thinking about children. So again, before we even go into this, just remembering that the statistics showed that SARS-CoV-2 primarily targets the elderly and the immune compromised, and that the vast majority of children in that age group, five to 11 years old, have very, very mild cases if they have symptoms at all, and there's been an extremely low death rate. Also keeping in mind that this is a brand new technology that we have never used before, and we are rolling it out at scale. So let's have a look at this. So this uh, paper is a preprint. So this is from MedRxIV, so it's the preprint server for health sciences. And it is titled, The Effectiveness of the BNT162B2, which is the Pfizer vaccine, among children 5 to 11 and 12 to 17 years in New York after the emergence of the Omicron variant. So this is a key point here, the emergence of the Omicron variant. Because remember, as we keep saying, the vaccines are designed on the original alpha strain. They are not designed for the Omicron variant. The alpha strain has not been in circulation really for almost 18 months now. So giving 
anyone a vaccine which is based on a variant which is no longer circulating. It's the equivalent, we're in 2022 now, you would not go down to the doctors and go, hey bro, it's flu season's coming up, have you got any of that 2020 stuff? No, you want the new flu shot, that's why there's a new flu shot every year. But let's have a quick look at this. Abstract, so importance. There is limited evidence on the effectiveness of the vaccine for children, particularly those 5 to 11 years and after the Omicron variant's emergence. Their objective was to estimate the vaccine effectiveness against COVID cases and hospitalizations among kids in that age group, so 5 to 11 and then 12 to 17 separately. Uh, the reason why they have separated those two groups is because the 5 to 11 year olds got a 10 microgram dose, the 12 to 17 year olds got a uh, 30 microgram dose, so different dose, dose sizes. And this was done in New York State. So main outcomes and measures. New laboratory confirmed COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations. Comparisons were made using the incidence rate ratio, comparing outcomes by vaccination status and estimated vaccine effectiveness. So that's VE. Results. From, the, from December 13, 2021 to January 30, 2022, among 852,000 fully vaccinated children aged 12 to 17 years and 365,500 children aged 5 to 11 years, Vaccine effectiveness against cases declined from 66% down to 51% in the 12 to 17 year old cohort and declined from 68% down to 12% for those that are 5 to 11 years. During the January 24 to, uh, to 30th week, vaccine effectiveness for children uh, 11 years of age was 11% and for those age 12 is 67%. So that's comparing obviously those two different dosage sizes because they're the two cohorts which are closest together in age that have the different dosage sizes. Vaccine effectiveness against hospitalization declined, uh, changed from 85% down to 73% in the children aged 12 to 17 and from 100% down to 48% for those aged 5 to 11. Among, newly, uh, sorry, among children newly vaccinated December 13, 2021 to January 2, 2022, vaccine effectiveness, effectiveness against cases within two weeks of full vaccination for children 12 to 17 years was 76%, and by 28 to 34 days it was 56%. For children 5 to 11, vaccine effectiveness against cases declined from 65% down to 12% by 28 to 34 days. So their conclusions and relevance. In the Omicron era, the effectiveness against cases of the vaccine declined rapidly for children, particularly those 5 to 11 years. However, vaccination for children 5 to 11 years was protective against severe disease and is recommended. These results highlight the potential need to study alternative vaccine dosing uh, for children and the continued importance layered protections, including mask wearing, to prevent infection and transmission. Okay, so that's... Those are the, the basics of, uh, of their study, and I'm going to put all of the links to all this information in the show notes. I encourage you to go and read them yourself. So as a layman, a layperson, what do I take out of this? Number one, it just goes to show you that when, again, it's further proof that, and most people know this, and most people claim to have known this the whole time, but it gives further credence to the fact that you cannot just take... Uh, trial data at face value because trial data is always going to end up being different to real world data that's number one number two 
one of the biggest issues I have with this, so to all those dates in there are might be a little bit confusing, especially if you're only listening along on audio. So let me break this down for you. The big key was the vaccine effectiveness in the 5 to 11 year olds dropped from 65% down to 12% when you went from the 14 days after vaccination to the 28 day mark. So in other words, let me break it down for you. Most of you should already be aware that you are only classified as fully vaccinated 14 days after your second dose. So if you get vaccinated today, 14 days later, your class is fully vaccinated. And that is generally because in that 14 days, you are more susceptible to catching literally any disease because your immune system is being forced to work, right? So it's the same way as if you ever run down with something else, you're more likely to catch a cold or, or whatever the case may be because your immune system's already been forced to work too hard. So from that day 14 to day 28, so in other words, from the moment that your child from 5 to 11 is classified as fully vaccinated, in 14 days, their, pretend, their protection against infection drops from 65% down to 12%. So in other words, we're looking at vaccinating children with a new vaccine that we have, we've not done the proper long-term studies, like we've mentioned many times before. We have not... We don't know what the potential adverse events are down long-term down the track from these vaccines. And yet we are still looking at rolling these vaccines out for children when it only potentially gives them a two-week window of 65% protection. And obviously, you don't go from 65% on day 14 and all the way through to day 27 and then you drop down to 12%. Clearly, it fades every day during that period of time. The next thing about this, which is very concerning for me, is something to keep in mind is that the these vaccines were only approved for that cohort under emergency use authorization in the United States. And the, uh, the threshold that they needed to achieve to be approved was over 50% protection, which doesn't sound like a lot, but you kind of get it when you go, okay, well, it is for an emergency, which again, I will throw the question out there as to how much of an emergency is this is especially the omicron variant particularly in children at this point in time i don't really think that you could classify children getting infected with omicron as an emergency and obviously the justification was to stop transmission clearly we've seen that that doesn't happen uh from being vaccinated so you can get rid of that argument already so the the number one issue that i have is that we are literally using experimental vaccines in children to give them a potential two-week benefit of 65% protection. And then the other issue is that had that 12% figure come up, these never would have been approved in the first place. So this then leads into what we've also spoken about previously about how all of these medical trials are run by the companies that are trying to sell their drugs. Did Pfizer know about the drop in efficacy before they actually printed the data? Did they know? Surely, if you did an extra two weeks of testing, you would have been able to to figure out this drop of data. Did they withhold that? I don't know. But the reality of the situation is, if this real-world data was present during the trials, these never would have been approved for emergency use authorization. And then 
in Australia, the TGA, uh, we've been approving everything based off the best available information, which is essentially if America approves it, we take their info, they, they look at it for one day, and then they go, yep, sweet, it's all good. Like, obviously, that's a little bit... Uh, a little bit of an exaggeration, but it's essentially what they do. They approve based on the best available information. So, in other words, to sum it up, these vaccines for children never should have been approved in the first place based off the real-world data. We should have serious questions about any like anyone who's looking at uh, vaccinating their kids should have serious questions about the risk-reward ratio of potential unknown long-term adverse events as opposed to a two-week benefit of 65% uh, protection against a disease, which generally, unless your child is immune compromised, should not have a very serious adverse event. Now, to sort of take another step further past this, this new study has come out, and this is why I'm getting really, really concerned about uh, injecting kids. And I've said this since the beginning, when we knew the disease wasn't really affecting children that bad, it made no sense to me to go out and inject them with a brand new technology that we don't understand what's happening. And we also remember early on in the mRNA vaccine rollouts and in all the information that we were given was that they were uh, an intramuscular injection. So they inject it into your shoulder and the uh, mRNA stays in the shoulder. Uh, it does its thing in your shoulder, never leaves your shoulder and it leaves your body after a couple of weeks or a few weeks or whatever it was that they were told. I thought it was like two weeks or something at the beginning. Now, this new study that has come out, uh, so new study, mRNA vaccines alter human liver DNA in vitro. So this is from Trial Site News. And I'll give you a couple little uh, bit of bits of information, especially for the audio listeners. So the, the headlining quote is, Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine causes intracellular reverse transcription of the vaccine mRNA into human DNA in vitro. So this is in a test tube, essentially. Uh, renewing concerns that vaccines may introduce spike protein into the nuclei of cells. The findings emerged Friday in a peer-reviewed article. So this has been peer-reviewed. Okay, that's a key, because that last one... Uh, the New York study was a preprint. This has been peer-reviewed. So the article is entitled Intracellular Reverse Transcription of Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 mRNA Vaccine BNT162B2 in vitro in human liver cell line. In the current issues in Molecular Biology Journal and imprint of MDPI, the largest open access publisher in the world and the fifth largest publisher overall in terms of journal paper output. So researchers warn, Pfizer vaccine may affect integrity of genomic DNA. So a quote from the, the article, our study shows that the vaccine can be reverse transcribed into DNA in liver cell line HUH7, and this may give rise to the concern if the vaccine-derived DNA may be integrated into the host genome and affect the integrity of genomic DNA, which may potentially mediate genotoxic side effects, the authors warn. So I'm not going to read too much into this. I'm going to read this part, though. In vitro versus in vivo caveats. Researchers, uh, researchers who conduct in vitro studies commonly remind that results that emerge from laboratories and test tubes often differ from results which are derived in living, fully intact organisms, just like in that uh, New York study we just spoke about. And the HUH7 itself has limitations that could introduce errors or anomalies into laboratory results. Still, 
The study conducted by researchers at one of Europe's oldest and most prestigious research institutions raises serious questions about Pfizer, uh, Pfizer's mRNA vaccine's impact on human DNA, which have yet to be subjected to the typical years-long or decades-long battery of long-term safety monitoring protocols. Uh, it also goes on to say that uh, it reverse transcribed into DNA within six hours of exposure. It has a whole lot of information there. Again, I'm going to put all the links in there if you want to go and have a read of it. But just to finish up, there's a quote here too. At this stage, we do not know if DNA reverse transcribed from the vaccine is integrated into the cell genome, the authors wrote. Further studies are needed to demonstrate the effect of the vaccine on genomic integrity, including whole genome sequencing of cells exposed to the vaccine, as well as tissues from human subjects who received uh, the, vac uh, the vaccination. Again, these two stories are obviously linked together. So, number one, uh, we were told that the mRNA would never leave your shoulder and wouldn't travel around your body. This appears to not be the case. Uh, that's why they're studying this in the first place. There's been a lot of studies coming around about the lipid nanoparticles ending up concentrated in different parts of the body. Uh, some of this stuff, again, we, could be misinformation, could not be, who knows. Uh, but where there's smoke, there's fire. And there's enough scientific data out there at the moment to at least indicate that this could potentially be a possibility. Number two, what are these guys saying? Uh, they're saying that this happens in a test tube and it may or may not happen in the real world, but we don't know. And that's the number one key here. We don't know. So when we don't know, we need to, again, be going back to that risk-reward scenario. And maybe if we still had alpha variant circulating, which had a you know, a higher death rate and uh, lower infectivity rate, maybe you'd be more inclined towards vaccination because it's the vaccines based off that variant and it may protect you from that variant, which was more deadly. An argument could be said that perhaps the medical community and medical care has come across leaps and bounds in the last two years as well. We know a little bit more about how to treat people that have got COVID. But at the end of the day, we don't know. We don't know what we don't know. And what my concern is, if we go back to this study here about the children, one of the... So I went straight to the study because a lot of the articles I read about it had pundits or scientists who are definitely pro-vaccination talking about how the only takeaway from the study is that obviously we need to look at the dosing amount that we're giving these young kids. So the idea is because there has been a much more drastic drop-off in effectiveness in the 5 to 11-year-old age group with the lower dosage, that if you increase the dosage, then they should have less of a drop-off and therefore more protection. Makes sense, right? The only concern is, again, the more mRNA we keep dosing people with, the more opportunities we have for something to go wrong, especially when it is a technology that we clearly do not understand. We don't know. The scientific community doesn't know. Because how many times have we been told something, which was 100%, to only find out that that was wrong after the fact? So can we please, again, just like I said with the Ukrainian situation, can we just be humble and go, okay, we need to admit what we know, we need to admit what we don't know. And we don't know what the long-term effects of mRNA are going to be. At this point in time, if you watch the news, COVID's over. COVID's done. Obviously, now that we've got a war and we've got biblical flooding to talk about instead, the media doesn't care about COVID anymore. It has been a very, very convenient narrative shifter for us, just like we said it would be a few weeks ago. 
where all of a sudden we can stop talking about COVID, we can just start hammering on about the war. And I'm just going to make a brief point too, which I wasn't going to, but uh, one of the things that I was really upset about with the flooding that we've experienced in Queensland and also in New South Wales now is, and I don't know if this is a uh, meteorological term, so please correct me if I'm wrong, but I keep hearing these weather events being referred to as rain bombs uh, by politicians. Anastasia Palaszczuk called it a rain bomb. I'm pretty sure Dominic Perrottet called it a rain bomb as well. I, again, I don't know if that's a proper term to be using. I might be wrong, but I cannot help but feel that all that is doing is just eliciting that emotional response because we've got a war on at the moment and there's bombs in war and wars are bad and bombs are bad. And the other thing about it being a water bomb is it means that there's, oh, it's a bomb. It's just exploded on us. There was nothing that we could have done to prepare for this. Most of us, especially up here in Queensland, will remember not too long ago that there was mass flooding as well. So perhaps there could have been a little bit more done, but I just feel like, again, I don't know anything about it. Not a town planner, not going to make any comments further on that. But all I'm going to say is this, I don't like the emotive language being used to throw further emotion to something that's already a bad situation. Because whenever I see that emotive language, I think sales. Because in sales, when I was selling cars, we were always told to make it an emotional person purchase, not a rational purchase. Because emotional people who get tied to a product who just want it more than anything in the world, they don't make rational decisions. And we have experienced that during COVID because they emotionalized COVID. And we are already experiencing it now with these rain bombs and with the Ukraine-Russia situation. Okay, now let's go over to Conspiracy Corner. This is the last little bit, which I'll get into for today, uh, which also goes into my diagram. Now, this has been sort of mentioned a few times, uh, but it's only really starting to get a little bit more mainstream coverage now. Again, I wouldn't really call it mainstream, but scientists discover a DNA chunk in COVID that matches Moderna's patented sequence from before the pandemic. So this is from... uh, uh, swfiinstitute.org. Uh, you can find stories all over the internet on this, but again, I'll post the links up. And this is from the 28th of February. So COVID-19 is the most severe global pandemic since the influenza pandemic of 1918. A group of researchers discovered that COVID-19 has a small piece of DNA that matched the genetic sequence patented by Moderna three years before the start of the pandemic in 2021. A basic local alignment search tool, or BLAST for short, uh, search for the 12 nucleotide insertion led us to a 100% reverse match in a proprietary sequence found in the US patent, it's got the number here, filed on February 4th, 2016. In bioinformatics, BLAST is an algorithm and program for comparing primary biological sequence information, such as the amino acid sequences of proteins, or the nucleotides of DNA and or RNA sequences. Moderna filed the patent as part of its cancer research division. COVID-19 is made up of 30,000 letters of genetic code that carry the information it needs to spread that are known as nucleotides. So remember, um, not last, the last time I did a solo episode, I mentioned how someone had analyzed that genetic code, that 30,000 characters, and saw small sections of HIV-like uh, code that looked like it had been inserted into it. So this is what they're talking about. They use uh, the BLAST algorithm to revert, like to search for these genetic sequences. 
So getting back to this. Uh, so the commonality was a very small piece made up of 19 nucleotides. So very small, 19 compared to the 30,000 letter sequence. Analysis of the original COVID-19 genome found the virus shares a sequence of 19 specific letters with a genetic section owned by Moderna, uh, which has a total of 3,300 nucleotides, according to the report. The findings were published in Frontiers in Virology, and the team includes Akhil Varshney from uh, Dr. Shroff Charity Eye Hospital in New Delhi. The study is titled MSH3 Homology and Potential Recombination Linked to SARS-CoV-2 Furin Cleavage Site. So again, we're talking about that furin cleavage site again. In quotes, the matching code may have originally been introduced to the COVID-19 genome through infected human cells expressing the MSH3 gene, wrote uh, Dr. Balamurali Ambati from the University of Oregon. So the Moderna CEO, Ben Cell, responds, The researchers suggest the virus may have mutated to have a furin cleavage site during experiments on human cells in a lab. However, the team claimed that there is a 1 in 3 trillion chance Moderna's sequence randomly appeared through natural evolution. This research fuels the lab leak theory of COVID-19. If there was any link of Moderna to a possible lab leak, it would hit the company with major lawsuits. Moderna, along with Pfizer, generated mounds of revenue selling mRNA COVID vaccines to governments around the world. So, uh, anyway, in, in uh, the CEO of Moderna's response, there's a quote here. And again, obviously, quotes can be taken out of context, but it does say, my scientists are looking into those data to see how accurate they are or not. As I've said before, the hypothesis of an escape from a lab by accident is possible. Humans make mistakes. Uh, the article goes on. When the COVID-19 pandemic started, social media sites like Twitter and YouTube, owned by Alphabet, labelled the lab leak theory as misinformation and censored accounts. Now the lab leak theory has come up as a broad possible theory of how COVID-19 came to pass. The lab leak theory argues COVID-19 escaped from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. The initial theory that was of the origins of COVID-19 at the time pushed by all major media and the World Health Organization was that the virus occurred in bats and jumped to humans, possibly at a wet market. Now, I'm not going to go through all the rest of this. You can go through and read this if you want. Why is this relevant? Obviously, kind of a big deal if a DNA sequence... Now, look, it, it is a small sequence, but it is nonetheless an exact match. But why is this important? A little-known fact that most people don't know is that the Moderna vaccine is co-owned by the United States National Institute of Health. So this article here from Axios shows the NIH claims joint ownership of Moderna's coronavirus vaccine. And I know, especially for audio listeners, this might be starting to uh, get a little bit messy in your head, but don't worry, I've got that diagram, which I will run through, which should tie this up uh, and give you a bit more of an idea of what, what we're uh, potentially talking about here. So let's look at this article. Uh, the National Institutes of Health may own intellectual property that undergirds a leading coronavirus vaccine. Oh, sorry, I should mention, this article itself, super, super interesting. Again, we'll put the full links up. It's from the 25th of June, 2020. Right, so we're going back two years now, 2020. So this is pre-release of the vaccines. And I found this extremely interesting. So let's have a look. Let's read. The National Institutes of Health may own intellectual property that undergirds a leading coronavirus vaccine being developed by Moderna, according to documents obtained by Axios and an, uh, an analysis from Public Citizen. I need some water. All right, why it matters. 
because the federal government has an actual stake in this vaccine. It could try to make the vaccine a free or low-cost public good with wide distribution if the product turns out to be safe and effective. The big picture? The NIH mostly funds outside research, but it also often invents basic scientific technologies that are are later licensed out and incorporated into drugs that are sold at massive profits. The agency rarely claims ownership stakes or pursues patent rights, but that appears to be different with this coronavirus vaccine. In quotes, we do have some particular stake in the intellectual property behind Moderna's coronavirus vaccine, the NIH director Francis Collins said during an Economic Club interview in May. Driving the news, new evidence shines light on the extent of the NIH's involvement. Uh, The NIH and Moderna have researched coronaviruses like MERS uh, for several years and signed a contract this past December that stated mRNA coronavirus vaccine candidates are developed and jointly owned by the two parties. The contract was not specific to the novel coronavirus and was signed before the new virus had been sequenced. Uh, let's scroll down. This is some more interesting stuff. What they're saying, NIH said in a statement that its scientists created these stabilized coronavirus spike proteins for the development of vaccines against coronaviruses, including SARS-CoV-2, and the government consequently has sought patents to preserve the government's rights to these inventions. Further, NIH has adopted a non-exclusive licensing approach for these patent rights in order to allow multiple vaccine developers to make a vaccine. Interesting point. NIH added that federal employees listed as inventors on these patent applications assigned their rights to the US government. Accordingly, should the United States Patent and Trademark Office and other national patent authorities grant the patents, the US government will hold ownership interest in the patents. Moderna declined to comment beyond a statement which said the company has a broad-owned and licensed IP estate and was not aware of any IP that would prevent us from commercialising our product candidates, including the coronavirus vaccine. Between the lines, Rizvi said co-owning the vaccine could allow the NIH to more broadly license the underlying technology to other vaccine manufacturers, in quotes, without the consent of Moderna. A company that is valued at $25 billion despite having no federally approved drugs on the market. The bottom line, many experts anticipate a coronavirus vaccine, once proven safe and effective, would be made as widely available as possible and that developers aren't likely to seek big profits from it. Partial federal ownership could be a backstop if these assumptions don't bear out, but NIH isn't keen on stepping on industry's toes. In quotes, talking to the companies, I don't hear any of them saying they think this vaccine is a moneymaker, Francis Collins said during his Economic Club interview. I think they want to recoup their costs and maybe make a tiny percentage of increase of profit over that, like single digits percentage-wise, but that's it. Nobody sees this as a way to make billions of dollars. All right, let's fast forward to now. So that was uh, the director of the NIH, Francis Collins, who was saying that uh, not only is it co-owned by the US government, so the you may remember us speaking about before, mRNA was a publicly funded technology. It was created by public funding. So taxpayer dollars funded the research which created this technology. Now, the NIH has gone and clearly given that technology to Moderna, they have uh, created a like a vaccine which is co-owned by Moderna and by uh, the government. And back in 2020, the head of the NIH, who has co-ownership in the patent, was saying that these companies were probably going to make this widely available and didn't want to make any money out of them. This is where Conspiracy Corner comes into play. And this is where my delightful diagram might help paint a bit more of a picture on why... 
the conspiracy theorists are so concerned. Let's have a look. So at the top here, you've got the National Institute of Health, or the NIH. Uh, the NIH so publicly funded the development of the mRNA technology and gave that technology to Moderna in exchange for joint ownership of their vaccine product. So to the left there, obviously they give it to Moderna, and then Moderna makes the vaccine and they're selling it for massive profits. Let's put that to the side. Underneath the NIH is the National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Diseases, or the NIAID. So that's under the NIH, and that is run by Dr. Anthony Fauci. They are responsible for all of the scientific research grants in America. So you might remember uh, we have spoken about in the past about when, uh, when there were no mainstream scientists coming out speaking about lab leak in particular, and then later on down the track when there were no mainstream scientists coming and speaking out about vaccine adverse events, everyone was going, oh, well, that, that's because it's not true. Or that's because it's not happening. No. What the concern was, was that you were then speaking against Dr. Anthony Fauci, who controls the purse strings of literally the entire research community in America. So if you speak against him, you get cut off for life. No more money, no grants, no funding, no nothing. That was, that was the concern. Let's continue on. So from there, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci and the NIAID then approved grants to EcoHealth Alliance. EcoHealth Alliance is run by Peter Dajak, who was one of the first scientists to publicly dismiss the lab leak theory. So again, let's go back to what we know. Uh, when the virus was first discovered, and in Fauci's email dumps that came out because of freedom of information, you can see there was that mad scramble, and then all of a sudden there was that scientific paper that came out that Peter Daszak was one of the four scientists on it, talking about how natural origin was the most, by far and away, the most likely origin of the coronavirus. So he happens to be the, the scientist that is running the company, which then took money, as per the diagram. So... Uh, they took money from the NIAID. Uh, in 2018, and we've spoken about this again a few weeks ago, uh, EcoHealth Alliance was rejected by the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, so that's DARPA. That's like the military uh, scientific research uh, department in America. For their grant proposal, which proposed to create infectious clones of bat coronaviruses and insert a furin cleavage site. That furin cleavage site is present in SARS-CoV-2. EcoHealth Alliance then forwarded that grant money to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which is a BSL-4, so a biosafety level 4 laboratory that studies bat coronaviruses in Wuhan where the pandemic began. And as you see from the little arrow, that's where our little friend, the coronavirus uh, molecule, was first discovered. So, if you wanted to get real conspiracy theory, what this may potentially look like is years ago, uh, the National Institute of Health, or maybe Moderna, maybe it was Moderna first, I don't know, Moderna's found this sequence, right, for the furin cleavage site. Then, somehow, in conjunction with the National Institute of Health, has developed mRNA technology which then goes on to be used in their vaccine. At the same time, a sub-branch of the National Institute of Health called the NIAID under Anthony Fauci is going around 
the ban on gain-of-function research, so the gain-of-function moratorium that was in, uh, in place in America, to give money to EcoHealth Alliance, which had just been rejected by the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency for a proposal to create infectious bat coronaviruses with a furin cleavage site, who they then send that money and potentially, the re well, obviously, the research of the Wuhan Institute of Virology, where the coronavirus starts from. Crazy. So, in, in sales, one of the things that we talk about a lot is uh, creating urgency to buy a product. So, let's say that you were going in to look at a car. One of the urgency stories that we might uh, use with you is maybe uh, you're due for a service coming up and it's one of the big ones uh, might be you know a timing belt or something like that that's due soon so that's a big expensive service so if you were going to sell that car you're better off to do it now before paying that money than selling it afterwards uh, so you can save that money just put into the new car that's sort of building urgency sales build urgency as well you you must buy now to get this deal while stocks last or this weekend while the sales on otherwise you'll miss out you create that urgency well how good would it be if you could not only create this amazing product that you could bring to market that you had patented but also create the issue that the product solves as well that'd be a pretty wild business plan wouldn't it create the problem sell the solution that's some like wolf of wall street shit <laughs> let's leave it there guys thank you very much for joining us uh let me know what you think in the comments if they don't get banned by youtube anyway and we'll see you next rdo